Thank you, Father, and thank you for everybody, your attention. Welcome back. Hope you have uh, uh, a lot of stamina and patience. Two back-to-back talks with Father Peter is going to be quite an endor- uh, ordeal, but uh, we'll try to make it uh, as painless as, as much as we can. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a very important topic, which is the question of the ethos of the Orthodox Church and We've chosen as a title, Lord, lead us in thy way that we may walk in thy truth. And as a subtitle, the inseparable unity of orthodox dogma and ethos. Every evening the church prays with the priest, O Lord, lead us in thy way that we may walk in thy truth. Thus confessing in prayer every day the experience of the saints, that is, To live in Christ and walk in His truth, one first must be led according to the way. Indeed, this is how the Lord's earliest disciples referred to themselves as belonging to the way. Undoubtedly, this flows naturally from the words of our Lord who proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father, but by me. For as Christians live not according to the word world, but rather in Christ, and Christ is the way, they are led by the way to the truth, who is life. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. <clears throat> it is precisely at this point, with this event, of knowing, experiencing the incarnate Truth, that morality, the ethos of man, begins with the dynamic realization of the fullness of existence and life, according to one contemporary uh, ecclesiastical writer. The acquisition of the orthodox ethos presupposes, then, an encounter with the one who is, the life of the world, and thus it is a matter of salvation, and hence absolutely inseparable from dogma. We cannot obtain the one with the other. We have this separation, though, in practice for the most people today in their minds. They say that one can be a good person, have an ethos that is Christian, and yet not uh, confess the truth of the gospel, not be a part of the body of Christ. That these things have been separated in our mind and our experience, and so we have a moralistic, a moralism instead of a Christian experience. So everywhere we look today around us, including among many Orthodox, there's a disintegration of, uh, and a dissolution of this unity, which if we are in this unity, and we are going to be on a very narrow path, as the Lord said, is a very narrow way and a winding way that leads to life. So one of the reasons why people fall off of this narrow path is precisely because this unity is lost to them, and it's lost because they depart from the body of Christ through the various schisms and heresies. Uh, So many people today, and we're surrounded by this mentality, believe in Christ, uh, believe, believe that to be saved is enough to believe in Christ and accept the revelation. If you assent to what the church teaches, what Christ said, you accept his revelation, you will be saved. This is oftentimes what people say. Yet, this is not yet salvation, to accept his revelation. For the demons, as we said yesterday, believe and tremble. Rather, we must live and believe in the church and with the church. Indeed, we must believe in Christ as the church, that the church is the body of Christ, his own flesh. As St. John Chrysostom says, Christ assumed the body of the church, and the church he made his own body. To separate Christ from his body, the church, and suppose that one can be with Christ, but outside the church is the grave delusion that we see all around us today in the heresy of ecumenism. Millions upon millions of people believe this delusion. That one, again, can can separate the body from Christ, the church from Christ. We think about, I'm a disciple of Christ, 
I'm a Christian, but I'm not in the body of Christ. Or we think of the body of Christ as being split into thousands of pieces. These are the same dogmatic error, and it speaks to a lack of experience of Christ. <clears throat> the unity is very clear in the mystery of baptism. Uh, and the prayer of which reads, Form thy Christ in him who is about to be reborn, and build him up in the foundation of thine apostles and prophets, and do not tear down, but plant him as a plant of truth in thy holy Catholic and apostolic church. So form thy Christ. How do we form the Christ in him? Planting him in uh, the truth in thy holy Catholic and apostolic church. So it is clear then that to separate Christ from the church or the church from Christ is to fall again into the greatest of delusions. As uh, Bishop Athanasius Yevtich wrote, we deprive Christ, the divine incarnate word of flesh, and strip him naked, expelling him from his body. This means, however, that we remove him from the man, from man and the world. And if we do this, strip the Theanthropos Christ of his flesh, the church, how are we still Christians and talk of Christianity? While the unity of Christ and his church, of faith and life, of dogma and ethos, should be self-evident to the Orthodox, it was and is a stumbling block for many today who are falling into the era of ecumenism and among the heterodox. The evangelical experience of the Protestants of the 19th century was not a matter of theological reflection, but rather a general experiential crisis, they claim. For them, if theologies could divide, experience can unite. This is a famous saying describing the missionary, uh, missionaries around the world in the 19th century. And truly, the Protestant missionaries did amazing work in terms of extent and just quantity and reach. The 19th century saw an amazing uh, missionary zeal. The problem was that they were preaching a false Christ. In other words, they were preaching the idea that dogma and ethos can be separated, that experience can unite, even though our theologies, which should be the fruit of our experience, divide. So their understanding here of theology and what experience means is clearly not correct, not patristic, not according to the Holy Fathers. <clears throat> they spoke of the fundamental conception of Christian unity which lay beneath their common striving, this is describing the evangelical Protestants of the 19th century, was that all true Christians share in the life in Christ, that they all are one by virtue of that sharing, and that this oneness is the essential Christian unity. On the face of it, it's a correct statement, but the assumption is that this unity and this experience and this life in Christ can be shattered into a thousand pieces and have different expressions and different theologies associated with it. And it betrays, the, it betrays that there's not unity and not a common experience when that's the case. So this division is indicative of a loss of experience of the, true, of the life of the church, the true experience of Christ. If the fruit of it is division, not only literal division between many, many thousands of groups, but division in one's own mind and conception of what, who Christ is and what theology is and what experience is. So the one who lives, for the one who lives in Christ... These three, the way, the truth, and life, in other words, dogma and ethos, are not three, but one, the person of Christ. Christ is all in all. And in everything, we have one experience of Christ. So our theology will express Christ, our ethos will express Christ, and all of that will be united in the same uh, theological dogmatic definition. The whole struggle of the ecumenical councils was precisely that to put boundaries around the experience, to put the experience, uh, to have the experience guarded by dogma. 
So the, the fathers literally laid down boundaries. That's the term they used to describe the decisions they made at the ecumenical councils. Oros in Greek means boundary. And so the boundaries, just like the Lord put down boundaries between the sea and the land and between nations, the church put down the boundaries between orthodoxy and heterodoxy, between experience of Christ, which is true, and a false or distorted experience of Christ because the expression was not consistent with the revelation and the tradition that had been handed down to us. The apostles, the apostle Paul witnesses, <clears throat> uh, witnesses to this experience of this mystery of the three as one when he writes, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the son of the, the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that experience of Christ within him is by the faith of the Son of God. His faithfulness, we're going to talk about in a little bit, very interesting and very important. The faithfulness of Christ is and, and becomes the faithfulness, and on that basis we have our own faithfulness in the church. He was first faithful unto death, and then we follow, and by his grace and by his presence in our life, we also are able to be faithful to him. The way, the truth, and the life are experienced as one, for they are the person of Christ. Not to be simply acquired, but first of all imparted. Not as concepts or ideas, but as in communion. <clears throat> Not quite there. The life in Christ is like an eagle. To fly, he needs both his wings. Yeah, actually, that was the one. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. And I was late on the other one, too. Uh, it's like an eagle, and to fly, he, he needs both his wings, both dogma and ethos. The Apostle James, the brother of the Lord, says, Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. It's not an accident that this was a uh, passage that the great uh, reformer would, would have liked to have not been in the scriptures at all because th this was not their experience of the life in Christ. Uh, so <clears throat> the meaning of faith, what is the meaning of faith? In a, in a word, we're going to talk about this now, it's his life becoming our life. Faith here must be understood as trust and a way of life, not an idea, not an ideology, not a theoretical construct. This faith, which is trust, is naturally shown in our whole life, in everything we do. Otherwise, it resembles a skeleton without flesh. It is a bare-bones Christianity, a dead Christianity, relegated to the museum, a matter for archaeologists. That's the result of this not becoming uh a, something that is entirely expressing and coming into every aspect of our life, right? So the characteristic of a secularized Christianity is that we are, uh, we are Christians in church on Sunday, we are Christians maybe around the table when we say the Our Father, or, or parts of our life, uh, but essentially that we take the church and the experience of Christ and we have it as a part of a life in the world, so we still have that religious experience, we still have that Christianity, but it's, it's, it's a part of a larger uh, outlook and experience which is antithetical, which is secular, which is an apostate experience. And this is uh, secularization. Secularization is not the, the absence or the extinguishing of a life of the church, a life, a Christian life, but it's the relegation of it and the emptying of it of all the power and the, uh, that God gives through the, through the Spirit, because we close the door to the Spirit of God. So, faith and trust, I say faith and trust because I want you to understand that, that we're talking now about the trust that one has in God, not the confession of faith, is not simply a human energy or effort, right? It is a gift to those seeking the way, truth, and life. It is both a presupposition for initiation, let me do, change this a bit so I can see. 
it is both a presupposition for initiation and a gift imparted to those united to Christ. It must be sought and received. For Christ himself is the en-hypostatic faith, according to St. Maximus. Go to the next one. Next one. Was that? Yeah, yeah, next. Oh, here it is. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you, you know my cards better than I do. Um, the apostles, the first catechumens, entreated Christ, increase our faith. Right? Do we pray? Do we ever say, God, increase my faith, increase my trust? Do we stand before the icon and say, I, I am a little faith, I have no faith, increase my faith? Do we understand that it's a gift from God? Or do we think it's only something that we carry? Most of the, pro most of the problem with our making, making no progress in the spiritual life is because we don't go to the source of the spiritual life, to the, to the fountain of faith, and, and seek, and knock, and ask, right? We say, well, I don't have a, I'm not making progress. Well, if you don't st stand at the door and knock on the door to the Lord and say, give me uh, that which... Uh, I desire, which is faith, trust, communion, you will not receive it. He is waiting for us to pray with the apostles, increase our faith. The process of uniting to Christ, the catechumenate, that's the whole process of the catechumenate, is that uniting ourselves to Christ is a process of increasing trust through assimilating the life of the church, the life in Christ. One of the big problems in the church in America is the catechumenate is essentially a process of learning about the church and about the life in Christ, as opposed to a process of purification and uniting ourselves to Christ. The, when you become a catechumenate, a catechumen, there's a service that the church reads, not just a prayer, but a service. The service that we now have attached to baptism is actually the service of making a catechumen. It says right there, the making of a catechumen. And it has exorcisms and it has a confession of faith. And that makes one a catechumen. And if that person dies before he's baptized, he's buried as an Orthodox Christian. We have downgraded the catechumen to almost just a stage of inquiry in many places. I mean, when I became an Orthodox Christian 32 years ago, uh, I, a very good man, but he didn't catechize me. He just gave me a few books to read. And he said, are you ready? I said, I think I'm ready. <laughs> that was it. That's not the catechumenate of the church. When you go back to St. Cyril and others, you have a totally full and very developed three-year program of divesting from the world and investing with Christ. When you arrive at the, at, the, at the threshold of baptism in the ancient church, you were living fully everything possible without the mysteries. You were praying with the church. You had put aside all the old man, the old ways, the old habits. You had acquired a habit and a way of life, probably more than most Orthodox Christians today who are already baptized, chrismated, and communed. I was talking once about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, with Father Stephanos Anagnostopoulos. It's hard to say in Greek and English. He's the author of a number of books you might have read on the Divine Liturgy and on the Prayer of Jesus. And he, he, he said at some point in the conversation, Father, we are like catechumens today. We, not they, we, the clergy and the people, are like catechumens today. That's how low we've come because we've, 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 not, uh, uh, we've put aside this extremely important foundational process for the whole upbuilding of the church. We, we all need to repent and make progress in truly having a thorough catechumenate, which is essential for the rest of the life in Christ. And if we haven't passed through that, we have to go through it even now. It doesn't matter if we've been Orthodox five or 10 or 15 years, we have to go through all that process even after baptism. St. Maximus, go ahead. St. Maximus writes, the en-hypostatic faith is the active and practiced one in accordance with which the word of God is shown in practical things, embodied by the commandments through which the word, the logos, leads those that do them up to the Father in whom he is by nature. St. Maximus here is pointing to the theanthropic faith and life of the church which was defended at the Council of Chalcedon, the so-called Christological dogma. 
So the main characteristic of the Orthodox ethos is its Christological and Christocentric nature. For the fathers, faith is nothing other than Christ himself. The perfect faith, says St. Ignatius of Antioch, is Jesus Christ. Not, we don't have faith in Jesus Christ. He is faith. Somewhere in the, in the, the, the epistle of the uh, Apostle Paul, it's totally mistranslated in English, in the King James Version. Uh, I should have had it in the screen here, but it's, I think, Galatians, I want to say 2.16 to 20. And he says, they say, uh, he's, the Apostle Paul says, in, successively in two sentences, four times, he uses the term faith of and then faith in. Faith of and faith in. In the, in the English, it's translated as faith in, faith in, faith in Christ, faith in Christ. And so the idea is, even though it says in Greek, it's in genitive, and it says to Christu, which would be of Christ, it's translated as faith in Christ. And so they've lost the understanding that his faithfulness is, a, is, is the basis of our whole life. And that his faithfulness makes it possible for us then to be saved. So there's an objective salvation, faith of Christ, his faithfulness to death, his resurrection, his ascension is what gives us eternal life. It's what brings us from death to life, the resurrection of all the bodies, right? It's his faithfulness. That is the objective faith. This is what Protestants think, that if I accept that, I am therefore saved. But there's a second part, which makes it personal, and that is faith in Christ, and that's the subjective side, right? We have to have both. We, 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 we confess, as we said yesterday, his work, and then we apply it to ourselves. And that's the whole process of purification, illumination, so the whole therapeutic program of the church. You need both to be saved. And so the, if you only have the first, you've totally missed the, the and you don't understand freedom, you don't understand the, the process of, of, of our synergy, our cooperation with what Christ has done. So the perfect faith is Jesus Christ. Christ is the beginning and the foundation of all the virtues, as St. Gregory of Sinai says. And St. Maximus repeats, Christ is the substance or hypostasis of all grace and virtue. According to Simeon the New Theologian, for every one, for every one that believes in him, Christ becomes power of prudence, strength of knowledge, might of wisdom, power of righteousness, foundation of love of God and men, and an action or energia of every sacred commandment and divine will, and a knowledgeable and natural aversion and hatred of all malice and sin and pleasure, meaning uh, licentiousness, and wickedness. Because Christ is our hope and peace, and without Christ, not only is one incapable of doing anything good, but he is also distanced from God. You could just meditate on this for a couple weeks right here. Christ is everything. He is the power of prudence. He is the strength of knowledge. Everything, if you are virtuous, if you have anything, it's Christ. It's him working within you. And so if you meditate on that for a minute, think about that for a minute. So so what's, what am I, what am, what's my whole life? What am I doing as a, in, in the church? What's the whole process? It's getting out of the way and allowing Christ to live and work within me. It's allowing him to come and dwell, the Holy Spirit to dwell. And so the, the, the straight path to that, the one that has been found again and again through all the lives of the saints for 2,000 years, what is the straight path to that reality? The Jesus prayer. Why is the Jesus prayer the straight path to that reality. Because in the Jesus prayer, we have two things happening simultaneously. We have purification and illumination. Calling on Christ in the Holy Spirit, the name of Christ brings in the Holy Spirit to us, and His presence at once purifies us and illumines us. So the fathers have, have gone through a variety of things in the Desert Fathers and the ancient ascetic texts, they saw, they, they used to pray the Psalms continuously, night and day, but they saw in the gospel, it was very clear in the gospel again and again, when does the miracle happen? When, what do we hear again in the gospel again and again? Son of David, Jesus Christ, save me, have mercy on me. And then the healing of the blind man and the healing of the, 
the sick and the raising of the dead. So this basic short prayer, you don't, and this is this again is goes to what we were saying yesterday. Christ is not a doesn't play favorites. If you can say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, you can follow the ascetics. You can follow the saints. Night and day, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. It's that simple and yet that profound at the same time. And that's very characteristic of the life in Christ. So the end of our faith, what is the end of our faith? We just said a minute ago, this little section, the meaning of faith is his life becomes mine. He comes and dwells. It's his kingdom that's revealed within us. And the end of this faith is also the beginning or the meaning of mission. And so, with all this in mind, we can see more clearly the nature and meaning of the commandment of our Lord to us now, fully, to the now fully initiated disciples, that they themselves now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. The apostles went through, 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 went through three years of the catechumenate. And at the end, after his resurrection, he sends them to the world. The end of our catechumenate should be the same. The mission. You can't become a Christian and understand what you've received and then bury it under a bushel. You can't become a Christian and understand who Christ is and have the experience of Christ and then not want everyone around you to have that same experience. It's impossible. So if you or I, or anyone in the Orthodox Church, from the patriarch down to the last newest convert, is self-satisfied, satisfied with being the right faith, or the faith of the Greeks, Russians, Serbians, whatever it might be, then we have a serious problem. We don't have the experience of the apostles. Once fully initiated, the disciples themselves go and make other disciples. That's how the Lord has organized the salvation of the world. <clears throat> the Lord commanded the apostles to make disciples, baptize and teach. They made disciples by way of the kidigma. The kidigma is the preaching of the good news of truth incarnate, calling all to repentance and entry into the church, which came by baptism, which is the end of the catechumenate and the beginning of, our, of his life as ours. So baptism is the end of the catechumenate period, and the beginning of his life as our life. We no longer live, but Christ now lives in us. And it goes through the preaching, the teaching, the spreading of, about of the gospel. That's how people hear and repent and come and, and, and come to the, the church. In the ancient church, you had the kiedigma, which was made for the non-Orthodox. Then you had the inner life of the church, which was not made and not meant for the non-Orthodox. What was that inner life of the church? Well, all of the mysteries are not meant to be preached. We don't put divine liturgy on the internet. At least the second half, we do not put on the internet. The fact that we do that today is a grievous transgression of the consciousness of the church for 2,000 years. There are presuppositions that are not met for the vast majority of people who are going to be watching that divine liturgy. They're not present to commune. They haven't been initiated. They're not a part of a community. There's so many problems with that. Now we've lost the sense of what the divine liturgy is about. That's the inner life of the church. We don't go and preach the Theotokos. That's not a part of our preaching. That's the inner life of the church. People say, well, why isn't the, why isn't the witness of the Dermission? Why don't we see it everywhere? Why would we see it? That's not for the world. We don't preach the Theotokos. We preach Christ and Him crucified. It was never meant to be preached. So there are certain things that are preached, and the whole point of the preaching, the whole point of the four Gospels, is for the catechumen. Why were the Gospels written? For the catechumen, to make him a Christian. And St. Saint Saint John says at the end of his Gospel, there are many other things that are not written here. The whole oral tradition, the whole life of the church is not written intentionally. It's not like, oh, they forgot something. They don't want it to be there because that text is given for the catechumen, not the initiated. So as baptism... Uh, at baptism, the newly illumined is born in Christ and Christ in him. And therefore, he lives the life of Christ. St. Gregory of Sinai writes, everyone... You got it. Okay, <laughs> you're ahead of me. I can't, do, I can't look at both at the same time. He writes, everyone that is baptized in Christ owes to reach unto the changes of age that are in Christ. Did you ever think of that? That you're called and expected to go through the various 
ages of Christ, the stages of Christ. You, you know what St. Paul says to the fullness of the stature of Christ, that there's a process. If Adam had stayed faithful, he would have done that same uh, uh, ascent, right? That's what we're called to do. We've been given it. Now we're in the paradise. We have to keep it. We have to keep the commandments, cultivate the commandments, and grow. So we're all called to that. He says, for he has received beforehand the capacity for them, or the power to do them. You have get, been, you've received the power. If you've been baptized, chrismated, and commune, you have the power to do them. And through them, the commandments, you are able to find and learn these, these meaning the, uh, the various stages of the life of Christ, the various virtues that we're called to be, to animate. So the commandments are the process by which we come to the fullness of Christ, if we keep them. St. Maximus likewise says, the word of God, having been born once after the flesh, is ever being born willingly after the spirit, through love for man in those willing. And he becomes a babe, forming himself in them by the virtues and appearing as much as he knows that the recipient is capable of bearing. See how it's all based on our willingness and our capacity and our desire. So nothing is lacking on the side of Christ. Many people, I've seen this in my life, they come to the mysteries of baptism or marriage or ordination or whatever it might be. And their experience of the grace of God doesn't have to always be manifested to other people, but their experience of the grace of God is going to be analogous with their struggle, analogous with their love, analogous with their sacrifice. And therefore, God is made manifest. So depending on their willingness, he is forming himself within us through the virtues, and we're growing in the various stages of the life of Christ. So Christ is formed in every member of his body and in the whole church, and then all the faithful become Christ's. We were called Christians in Antioch, and all the saints are called little Christ. That's the whole purpose of our life. Think about that. Review, review, review within yourself. Is that the purpose of my life? What am I doing with my life? Why am I in the church? Why do I go on Sunday? To form Christ within me. To become Christ, to become all in all. In my words, my deeds, my thoughts, my impulses, my glances, my desires, my every movement, the way I sit, the way I stand, the way I think, the way I talk. Everything become Christ. Everything be animated by the Spirit of God. That's the, the purpose of our life. He doesn't want any part of our being to be left unsanctified. Likewise, according to St. Methodius of Olympus, Christ is born in each one noetically. And because of this, the church swells and is in labor till Christ, having been born, be formed in us, so that each of the saints might be born a Christ by partaking of Christ as if those who have been baptized into Christ according to, according to the partaking of the Spirit had become Christ. So we have another father speaking of the same experience. So what is the end of mission then? The goal, the end of mission is the keeping of the commandments, receiving the Holy Trinity. After baptism, there was a second teaching in order that the regenerated might retain the salvation given in baptism by observing all things whatsoever Christ had commanded them. So we have a first teaching, a first discipleship, right? And then we have a second. We have becoming disciples and then keeping everything that he commanded. Those things have to go together. You don't just make disciples and then put aside the commandments. Those, that's not going to work. Baptism was the indissoluble link between the preaching of the gospel and the living out of the gospel. After baptism, one was exhorted to continue in his word, in the faith, and in the doctrine. This is essentially uh, the portal. So people say, well, uh, you have this idea today, we'll talk about this in the next hour, in ecumenism, that there are people outside the church who are baptized. There are people outside the church who are participating in the church. This is a fundamental ecclesiological error. And it's a misunderstanding of the portal of the mysteries. And it's a misunderstanding of the work of the Holy Spirit outside the church. The Holy Spirit is definitely at work outside the church. All throughout creation. There's nothing that exists without the Holy Spirit. 
There's no one who reaches the church without the Holy Spirit. There's no good deed on the face of the earth without the Holy Spirit. But that work and operation and energia and energy of the Holy Spirit is not the same work and operation and energy in the mysteries of the church. One can be can be led to the light. One cannot be baptized, immersed, and purified and illumined in the light without entering into the body of Christ and the mystery of baptism. So these ideas that float around, and there are many Orthodox Christians, including priests and, and bishops, who believe that there is such a thing as a baptism outside the body. There is no such thing as a baptism outside the body. Whatever we have there is not that which Christ has imparted to his church. St. Gregory of Nyssa wrote, For by dividing in two the way of life of Christians, on the one hand he locks securely the salvific dogma into the tradition, or the handing over, of baptism, while on the other hand he commands that our life be kept straight through the keeping of his commandments. Again, repeating what we just said, but now from St. Gregory's perspective. This shows that baptism is a prerequisite to the keeping of the, keeping of the commandments of Christ, the gift of faith given to the faithful by the only one who is faithful, and holiness imparted to the holy from the only one who is holy. What do we say in the Divine Liturgy? The holy things for the holy. How do you become holy? By participation in the Holy One. How do you become faithful? By, by accepting the one who is, who is alone faithful unto death. Again, everything is Christ, including whatever we have. When it says, when it says, they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, those good works are Christ working in and through you. Again, we said last night, remember the zeros and the one, right? We are zeros, and yet everything has value because it's Christ in us, Christ through us, Christ inspiring us. And then all that has eternal value. After initiation into the life of who is Christ, the devil gives all his attention to how he could lead men astray from the way and the truth. People say, well, uh, why is it that after baptism, people write me and say, why is it after baptism we have all these temptations? And I said, well, now, you, now you're beginning the struggle. Now the devil has, has, you, has, has taken notice of you and is very angry that he lost one to the church. The enemy seeks mainly to corrupt dogma. If you've read church history, you can see this again and again and again. And of course, if you live in the church today, you can see it all over the place. The corruption of the dogma is his main aim. Why? Because then the life of the Christian would also be corrupted. Dogma corrupted, the life of the Christian is corrupted. Thus, St. Gregory of Nyssa urges all who desire the salvation of their souls must not depart from the simplicity of the first words of faith, just as they should also accept in their soul the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, with faithfulness, simplicity, humility, meekness, submit yourself to the, to the simple gospel, the profound but simple gospel. Be totally faithful to that, and you will not give room to the enemy of salvation to take you away from the narrow path. St. Cyril of Jerusalem writes that the manner of piety or fear of God consists of these two, of pious dogmas and good deeds. And neither the dogmas without good works, that is life in Christ, are acceptable to God, nor does God accept the works done without pious dogmas. Again, the unity of dogma and ethos, and how it's not possible outside the revelation and the dogma to make progress in virtue, contrary to the very uh, powerful and intense propaganda that were constantly put under, even among many Christians. St. Maximus the Confessor writes that the way of salvation is threefold. Keeping the commandments, preserving the dogmas, having trust in the Holy Trinity. One applies the commandments, his noose, his intellect, is freed from the passions. That's purification. When one gains epignosis, that's experiential knowledge, we talked about last night, not theoretical knowledge, but experiential knowledge of the dogmas. When one gains experiential knowledge of the dogmas, he's introduced to the meaning of beings. Ilogi ton ondon is the phrase, it's very well known in patristic, among patristic scholars from St. Maximus. The meaning of the beings, the meaning of everything in this world. 
When one makes progress after purification in illumination, what happens? He starts to understand the meaning of everything. His life, the purpose of everything that happens, including the smallest thing in his life. He recognizes the hand of God. He recognizes and discerns the spirits of the enemy and the, and the spirit of God. That's the fruit of illumination, of purification and then illumination. You start to understand the purpose and the meaning of everything. What are we living in a life in, a, in an age of nihilism? The opposite of this gift, right? Where th no thing has meaning. And this should show you, actually points to the truth of the gospel. When the devil walks naked through history and we see the fruits of his work all around us in this, in this sick society, which is a nihilistic, narcissistic society, that's actually, if you have understand the gospel, that's actually a proof of the gospel. Because the opposite, the darkness, points that there is light, right? So nihilism is the exact opposite. And so we see our society as falling into the exact opposite of what God intended and has brought to the world. The enlightenment and the meaning of everything is given to man. And then when faith or trust becomes total, this is what happens in the lives of the saints. They have total trust. If you have anxiety, what will happen? Will I do all this anxiety we see in the COVID during anxiety? Anxiety is everybody's afraid. That's a sign that we have not faith and trust, right? But when it becomes total, this trust, man is led up into theoria. Theoria would be vision or contemplation of the Holy Trinity. And that is the final stage of the spiritual life. And that's theosis. So total trust is a, is a sign of a true and saved human being, a true disciple. So even this keeping of the commandment of God in Corinthians 7, 9, has a Trinitarian character. Because according to St. Maximus, the God and Word of God mystically exists in each one of his own commandments. Have you thought about the commandments as like rules that you have to keep? Have you thought about them in like an Old Testament way, like Ten Commandments? I have to, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to, I have to, the children, I have to obey my mother, right? No, the commandments here, brothers and sisters, are Christ himself. He is, keeping his commandments makes you like unto him. He then comes and dwells in you. So God mystically exists in each of his own commandments, while God the Father is wholly inseparable, existing in the whole of his own word naturally. The word of God, he means here. Therefore, he that receives a divine commandment and does it receives the word of God who is in that commandment. And he that has received the word through the commandments has also received through him the spirit that is in him naturally. For amen, he says, I say unto you, he that receives whoever I shall send receives me, and he that receives me receives him that sent me. So here again is this is the economy of salvation, the way the Lord worked works the economy of salvation is that receiving the disciples and the disciples of the disciples, you receive Christ. And receiving Christ, you receive the whole of the Holy Trinity. And He all He, he and the Father and the Spirit come and dwell in you. Again, showing it's impossible to be a Christian outside of the church and outside of the stream of holy tradition. Impossible. You can be a moralistic uh, enthusiast, a legalist. You can be all kinds of things and call it Christianity. You cannot be in this line and, assume, and, and, and assimilate the life of the Holy Trinity without being in the church. As St. Simeon says, for the entire praise and blessedness of the saints consists of these two, both of the Orthodox faith and praiseworthy life and of the gift of the Holy Spirit and His gifts. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given as a gift and the particular gifts of the Holy Spirit, both and, right? The Holy Spirit is, comes and dwells in us and He brings with Him all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit of the first two, Orthodox faith and the Orthodox ethos. So after the first, the third follows in its wake. So as you can see, the the fathers of the church loved speaking with akrivia, with exactitude, right? So the keeping of the faith. Now we're, we're in paradise, we're cultivating the virtues, we're, 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 we're living the life of Christ, and then the person who does this understands the importance of keeping the faith, that is striving for everything with exactitude, with akrivia. With akrivia in Greek, exactitude, keeping it exactly as the Lord commanded 
So I'll give you some examples of what we're not doing today and how this is a distortion and a sign of our own apostasy, even among Orthodox Christians. We have the mystery of baptism, which is so important, the foundation of our whole life in Christ. And yet we have the idea, which is inherited from Thomas Aquinas and the West, that it doesn't matter if you immerse or you sprinkle or you pour. It doesn't matter at all. It's all insignificant. That is a disposition and a stance which is not the ecrivia, right? Not the exact. That's a sign that we're not in the stage of keeping the faith and being uh, cognizant and being mindful of everything the Lord has commanded. There's nothing accidental. Everything he commands, everything he does is because he wants to save us. It's for our salvation. So if we are are negligent or lax and we approach the holy mysteries with negligence and laxity, we will reap the benefits or the rather the, the, the bad results of that negligence. The fathers loved speaking with akrivia, with exactitude. The exactitude of dog, in dogma brings exactitude in the ethos, in the spiritual life. There are people today, Orthodox Christians, accusing not only myself, but many others who are struggling for the akrivia, even unworthily as we are, but we want the akrivia of the church as rigorous. I say, well, you're rigorous. Well, then the fathers are rigorous because we're poor and we're impoverished Christians at the last day. All we want is the basics to be kept. The fathers were far more intense. They're far more rigorous than we ever, ever could be today. And it's extremely important. And anyone who has made progress, again, I want to repeat this third time, who's made progress desires the exactitude of the gospel, the exactitude of the commandments. It's very indicative of a spiritual life that one desires that. So we find expressions like the following in St. John Damascene, who says, I have been neg negligent in the exactitude regarding the Lord. He talks about how we have to keep the akrivia. St. John Chrysostom says the exactitude of our way of life. He speaks about the exactitude or the akrivia of our way of life. And the Epistle of Barnabas, the ancient text, says, So we sought, we ought to remain with exactitude regarding our salvation. And St. Epiphanes of Cyprus says the exactitude of preaching, the kidigma of the church, we must keep. So everywhere you look in the Fathers, you see exactitude, akrivia, precision in what in keeping the commandments. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians, so then that you walk circumspectly. That actually is the same word exactitude in Greek, akrivos, akrivia akrivos, with precision, walk circumspectly, he says. See here means be careful. Right? He says, see then that you walk circumspectly. Be careful, be on guard. Walk means to live in a specific way according to the gospel. Right? So he speaks here with respect to the ethos. Walk according to the gospel with akrivia. Listen to what Elder Athanasio says about the unity of the way and uh, with the truth. The, the way and the truth together. And this is an example that we can apply today to things that are going on in the church right now. He says, our ethos comes from our dogmas. For example, it is written, do not fornicate. Fornication is, is not faithful to the commandment of God to be pure. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Fornication is a sign of disdain and, and uh, for, the, for the gospel and the commandments of our Lord. What is this command? It's the ethos. But this comes from the dogma. What dogma? What does this constitute? Does it not constitute a truth, a dogma? Does not Apostle Paul say that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? That's the dogma. And based on that dogma, we have the ethos, do not fornicate. From whence then does ethos come? The ethos that you must not fornicate from the dogma that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So if I ruin the dogma, if I change it, if I corrupt it, by necessity, the ethos will also be corrupted. So these two are inseparable. So exactitude in dogma and ethos, on behalf of which the Holy Fathers labored diligently in the councils and in their writings, is not rigorism. It's not scholasticism, but it's the fruit of love of God and, and the care for the faithful and their salvation. For without such an exactitude, salvation is lost. So we should, should never forget that we will be judged, brothers and sisters. We will be judged 
on the basis of the gospel which Christ and the apostles imparted, the same gospel which was preserved in the Holy Tradition and taught and passed on by the Holy Fathers. Whatever else is from the world, whatever else from the world is from the devil. Only exacted in dogma and ethos saves us from the wiles of the devil. Now, now listen to St. John Chrysostom's, how about uh, what he says about doctrines protect us from demons. The doctrines protect us from demons, he says. Not so among the saints, or rather, not even among us sinners. For although our practice is beyond endurance, yet because by God's grace we cling with much exactness to the dogmas, the doctrines of truth, we are above the malice of the evil spirits. So that's the path. If you are not concerned about the dogma of the church, if you're indifferent to the struggle of the church, for instance, against the heresy of ecumenism, then you are not going to be making progress against the demonic and the demons. Every, everyone is co-responsible here. All of us have a part to play, even if it's just praying fervently in our cell for the sake of the dogma and the truth of the church to be manifest. Because right now we have heretically minded hierarchs and priests and theologians who are, who are putting a blanket of darkness over the light of the church and preventing people from seeing and believing and repenting and being baptized. And all of us should be co-sufferers and co-strugglers against this distortion, and therefore will be protected from the evil spirits, according to St. John Chrysostom. So one must ground himself thoroughly within the holy tradition, moving beyond learning about Christ, knowledge on the rational level alone, to living in Christ, knowledge gained by epignosis, practical experience, hands-on knowledge gained from communion with and in Christ. Conclusion. A few words and then we're done and we'll open up to questions. The rivers cannot be separated from the sources and the sources cannot be separated from the rivers. Likewise, the dogmas cannot be separated from the canons and the ethos of the church which they indicate, and the holy canons and the ethos cannot be separated from the dogmas. The church is the pillar and ground of truth, but also vice versa. Truth is the pillar and ground of the church, according to St. John Chrysostom. Remember the unity of the cross of Christ, the vertical and the horizontal planes, not just learning about Christ, but going deeper and ascending to Christ. They must remain together. Revelation and history, the truth and the way, faith and life, dogma and ethos. And so we pray daily, Lord, lead us in thy way that we may walk in thy truth. Amen.